Good afternoon. I'm here with uh, Professor Lawrence Sherman. This is Cosmic as Fuck. I'm your host, Michael Bryden. And today we're going to be talking a bit about policing and Larry's kind of influence on criminology and, and the world of policing. So Professor Lawrence Sherman is the current director of the Jerry Lee Centre for Experimental Criminology and the chair of the Cambridge Police Executive Program. And he's also the former director of the Cambridge Institute of Criminology here in in Cambridge. So, Professor, welcome and uh, appreciate your time. How, how are you today? Just great. Thank you, Mike. Good. So, getting started, um, I recall the time we first met and I came into here uh, on, a, on a university tour and I spoke about my interest in policing and you're incredibly generous with your time and you showed me around Darwin College with lunch. You gave me a copy of your book and you also introduced me to my now supervisor, Dr. Justice Tankerby. And that's a quick shout out too, because you also introduced me to um, Connor uh, Loy. Loy, yeah, Connor Loy. Denison University. Yeah, Denison. Yeah, great. Um, he's a great guy. Uh, he's a statistician and uh, an American. Um, we had a lot of fun playing football and stuff. So yeah, uh, tell us, how did you end up at Cambridge? Uh, from you know criminology and from UPenn and Yale and where else you also studied? Well, in a way, I really started in criminology at uh, at Cambridge. I had. Uh, finished a master's degree in social science at the University of Chicago before I uh, spent uh, two years in the New York City Police Department as, a, as an analyst in the police commissioner's office. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I met the founding director of the Cambridge Institute of Criminology, Professor Sir Leon Radzinovich, really? who <laughs> was a visiting professor at Columbia Law School, and he sent his students to do research projects in the New York City Police Department. Nice. And I was designated the liaison, so... I, I helped his students get access to their data and uh, field observations, and um, he invited me for a, a drink at this very nice hotel across from the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, in New York, and um, the next thing I know, uh, he had arranged for a Ford Foundation fellowship for me to come do the one-year course that's now called the Masters of Philosophy uh, at Cambridge, Yeah. Um, and I, I came very close to staying here, but I really wanted to work with a police scholar named Albert J. Reese Jr., uh, who was teaching at Yale University. So I went there to get my PhD and um, <clears throat> kept in touch with Cambridge throughout a career in experimental criminology um, uh, from, right from the beginning of my 
uh, police uh, research uh, experience. In fact, even before I came to Cambridge, I was involved in designing experiments uh, in the Kansas City Police Department under the support of the Police Foundation, which the Ford Foundation had also been funding, um, uh, and uh, for which I was working before I had their, their support to come study at Cambridge. But all those years um, had left me thinking, gosh, the best year of my life was at Cambridge. <laughs> uh, it was really such an amazing place. Yeah. And um, when uh, this committee decided to uh, elect me as uh, the fourth Wilson Professor of Criminology, I uh, found an offer I couldn't refuse. So I came back here in 2007 nice. uh, to do that. Yeah. Um, so tell just for people who aren't criminologists... Um, what is experimental criminology and what does it bring to the table that other forms of criminology may not? Well, most criminology is observational in the sense that we, we watch things happen. But the difference in science between an experiment and an observation study uh, is essentially the idea that you manipulate things. And by uh, the logical force of manipulation, you can conclude things about cause and effect that you can never conclude just by watching how things happen with yep. confounding relationships of the key variables. Uh, we talk about statistical controls, but they don't really control for the, uh, the logical issues of uh, alternative uh, possible explanations that always exist with correlational or observational studies. But when you do uh, the kind of experiment that was invented by a Cambridge professor named Sir Ronald Fisher, uh, originally for uh, agricultural experiments with different kinds of fields and looking at the effect of different kinds of fertilizers or um, methods of crop rotation. Um, if you have large numbers of units that are a bit different to begin with, but you perhaps uh, guarantee e equivalent proportions of all those differences in two groups by random assignment, and then you change one thing, like yeah. making an arrest for domestic violence versus, versus giving a warning. Um, across uh, 1,200 people, as we did in Milwaukee, then you've got very strong causal inference uh, to conclude, for example, that when um, 23 years later, um, the black victims in the sample whose abusers were arrested are twice as likely to be dead, and not from homicide, but by general causes of, really? of heart attacks, cancer, etc., um, we know that that was caused by the arrest decision. Because nothing else was different at the time the uh, arrest decision was made. And whatever other things followed from that arrest decision uh, that we can't track, whatever they may be, we know that the first cause of the doubling of the death rate from 5 to 10% over 23 years between the women whose abusers were arrested compared to those who were warned has to have been caused by that police arrest decision. You can't make those kinds of conclusions without having an experiment. Yeah. So bring it to the real world now. Um, there's been a lot of shootings recently in the US and especially the Parkland shooting of the kids in high schools. Now, I know you've done a bit of research in gun violence yourself and you also spoke on the committee to the president. Um, what do you think, what are the best steps to take towards fixing America's gun crime problem? Well, let me just clarify that I did uh, speak before the uh, Obama yeah. uh, Committee on um, yeah, 21st, 21st <laughs> Century uh, Policing, and it issued a number of recommendations, um, uh, including a number of things I, I recommended to them. Um, 
such as uh, potentially uh, looking at consolidation of the 18,000 small police departments in the United States to the um, much closer to British police forces in size, where the smallest one here is 1,000 officers, and there, there's probably not more than um, 25 police departments in the United States that have more than 1,000 officers out of the 18,000. So yeah, yeah. There's, there's huge organizational differences. The biggest difference between the United States and all the other um, G20 nations is the number of guns. Uh, and the police fear, uh, quite rational fear, of being shot to death uh, in the United States uh, is, is far greater. Um, and if we were to try to explain the differences between policing cultures in Australia or the U.S., uh, sorry, Australia, the U.K., New Zealand, all examples of low shooting death uh, rates caused by police, um, Scandinavia as well. These are all places, with the exception of the UK, where police carry guns. They just don't use them very often. And they don't have much fear of the people they're encountering having guns, um, especially not for ordinary things like domestics. But, you know, just a month ago, two officers went to a domestic in uh, a small town in the south, and they walked up to the front door, and they both got shot to death. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. this context in which 40, 50 uh, police a year, even with bulletproof vests, are, are being shot to death um, is, I think, the driver behind a 1,000 people a year being shot to death by police uh, in ways that they consider preempted. I, I can give you lots of different ways to handle the situation with Stefan Clark in, in Sacramento, uh, who was shot um, 20 times, um, and apparently most of them in the back, but he might have been spinning around. In, mm. in any case, he was shot by, uh, he was a black man shot by a black male officer and a white female officer, who were both shooting preemptively, uh, I think, um, out of fear of their own lives. Um, but also, uh, and this is very important in terms of police systems, also out of a fear of losing peer respect. Because if you have somebody mm. who's reported to be breaking windows in cars, and is spotted by a police helicopter in the backyard of a house. And you don't go after him. That means you're a coward. That means that you're exposing a victim potentially to being hurt or killed by somebody who doesn't belong in the backyard. What they didn't know is that it was his grandmother's backyard. And he did belong there. God. And these are the kinds of um, collateral damages that occur when you have a police force that is driven by a mission to protect victims, and to therefore cast the definition of a situation in terms of great urgency. Mm-hmm. And the, the culture of dealing with something right away rather than delay, which is the British rule. Um, and you know the rule in Britain is if you have a, a, a gunman, uh, then somebody's got to go get coffee because you're going to be there a long time. <laughs> that, that's in, inconceivable to American police. Because the culture is, you've got to deal with it right away. And if you don't, you find yourself in the position of the sheriff's deputy in Florida who was trying to figure out where the shooter was and who was attacked by the president of the United States, the governor of the state, and, and just about you know anybody else who wanted to weigh in on Twitter for being a coward. This is after 20 years of getting commendations for being an outstanding school mm-hmm. officer and, and, a, and a great police officer in many other ways. So At uh, Parkland, right? Say it again? At Parkland, the, the school At the, at the yeah. uh, Stoneman Douglas uh, High School in Parkland, Florida, yeah. uh, with uh, uh, that event itself 
potentially being a turning point in American policy on gun control. And with the students there rightly focusing on guns in America and not on cowardly police officers. Yeah, that's right. Which uh, certainly didn't cause those people to die. What caused those people to die was the ease with which uh, anybody who doesn't have a, a prior record of a mental um, institutional restraining uh, order by a court uh, of some sort uh, or a, uh, a prior criminal record, anybody can buy any kind of guns they want, including an AR-15, which uh, another question is, should anybody buy an AR-15 with that kind of firepower, um, even in their best, best of mental health? And, and what sort of red flag laws should there be to give the police who did look into this guy before he did the shooting the power to take his guns away. And um, now it looks like Florida's got such a law, except a court can take up to 14 days to decide whether or not the police can take the guns away, by which time somebody with an AR-15 can kill a lot of people. Yeah. So I'm not satisfied with any of the solutions that we have to the gun problem in the United States. I'm working on a way to make policing safer, uh, both for officers and for the people they encounter that would include um, uh, trying to slow policing down and to mm. try to structure the protocol for how officers put themselves in harm's way um, and to do something that was done in Melbourne um, about 10 years ago, um, which uh, worked for a while but then lost support from the leadership. Um, but a lot of the things that they did in Melbourne are actually enshrined in law in the UK. And if they can be enshrined in law in the U.S., along with more restrictions on who has guns, then there may be some hope. I have to say, for the time being, um, I think it's more productive for researchers who want research to drive police improvement to be working in the British Commonwealth, uh, as opposed to the United States. Really? For all the reasons I just described. The, the receptivity to research in this crisis of American uh, bloodshed between uh, police and citizens related to the gun supply, uh, there's just no air left for thinking and research. It's all about confrontation, blame, uh, anger, uh, people demanding that police be fired rather than the police systems be re-engineered. Uh, the change isn't going to happen by trying to convict more officers because A, they're not getting convicted, the juries are letting them go, and B, the um, conviction doesn't really deal with the fundamental problems of, of how you engineer policing in a, in a country awash with guns. And until those problems are even recognized by the press, which they're not, the press doesn't talk about any of those issues in relation to police shootings, they feed the populist anger demanding more punishment of the yeah. police. Um, and it's, it's not going to be getting anywhere as long as we have all these other things dominating the headlines in the United States, um, which um, means that I'm making a strategic decision to try to focus on the UK, Australia, Scandinavia, India, where we're doing a lot of work, and other places that are more in the British rule of law tradition uh, than the United States is. Yeah, and so do you think that would have a better impact on the U.S.? Like, say, coming here, doing research here, putting that works here, will it have any impact at all in the U.S.? Or do you think we should still have researchers going back to the U.S. and, like, trying to push, trying to change culture, like, engaging at the policing level? Well, that's a really great long-term question. Um, uh, I have a limited 
number of decades left. Uh, <laughs> and depending, depending on what is going to happen in the near term in the United States, uh, over gun control in particular, there may be more or less opportunity to get things done in the U.S., uh, but there's huge opportunities uh, here in the UK, and I think the hope for UK leadership of policing in the democratic world is greater now than it's ever been, because there's yeah. so many smart people working so hard to uh, not only put research into action, but now police officers doing their research. And the Cambridge Journal for Evidence-Based Policing being a pracademic journal in which most of the articles have, as the first author of the article, a serving police officer yeah. from the rank of constable to chief constable and experiments being run by sergeants. And it's just, it was inconceivable to me when I came to Cambridge uh, 10 years ago that this could happen. But it's just taken off like wildfire with the founding of the Society for Evidence-Based Policing, yeah. uh, consisting mostly of serving police officers who are interested in doing and putting, uh, doing research and putting research to work. I, I can't sing the praises of British policing enough, um, even though it's got a long way to go, like everybody else, but boy, are they, they're making progress, rapid progress. There's great leadership, grassroots, middle ranks of police leadership who are buying into this and supporting each other and, and making changes happen based on their research. Yeah, this is one of the main reasons why I picked Cambridge for this very reason, you know, because um, I, really I wanted to be a cop for quite a long time. And I still have some inclinations for that, but I, I think I could be perhaps better served elsewhere or, or perhaps doing a part-time kind of policing job as well. Um, so talk a bit about the idea behind the journal. Like, why did you feel the need to create this journal specifically? The uh, hallmark of uh, science-based professions is that the practitioners actually do their own research yeah. uh, in a speech given by uh, the Prime Minister when she was Home Secretary. She actually uh, had a paragraph uh, comparing police to surgeons and mm -hmm. how doctors do research and publish in medical journals. And she said, the police should be doing exactly the same thing. So I said, well, that's a really great idea. And, <laughs> yeah. and we, we had the program growing substantially. We had more and more officers doing really great research under the supervision of great academics like Justice Tankaby and Barack Ariel and, yeah. and others. And um, we had this discussion about whether we should be posting the theses on the website. Now, the thesis structure is 18,000 words. And following all the academic rules about how to write a thesis doesn't necessarily make a very useful journal article, which tends to be um, about 5,000 words. So we decided to go down the path of creating a journal published by one of the leading scientific publishers, uh, Springer Nature, and have the... Um, uh, the article shortened through our editorial process um, after it had gotten substantial peer review. And the, the upshot is now we have articles that are published on this journal online in open access and three, 4,000, up to 10,000 people are downloading articles that are published in this open access. Journal. Sorry? I didn't realize it was open access. Yeah, well, not, not 100% of the articles are, but anything that a Cambridge supervisor is a co-author on has subsidized open access by the UK, trying to encourage open access publications. That's awesome. That's so cool. it, it really promotes people all over the world reading the research that's done by students at Cambridge from all over the world yep. uh, under supervision. We have some Australian articles. We're about to have our first Danish article mm. um, and uh, possibly even Uruguayan. Uh, nice. And uh, so it's, it's really very encouraging 
to see a field embrace research as police-led research, not just police being led by research. Yeah, that's great. So changing um, tack a bit now. So I, I'm a fan of uh, Professor Stephen Pinker from Harvard, and he talks about how it's important that we have kind of empirical facts out there and that are discussed with nuance so that when people come across them, they don't, doesn't lead them to go to the wrong conclusions. And mm-hmm. in particular, he talks about this problem of um, disproportionate rates of black crime. So do you want to talk a bit about why that occurs? Why do black people in America, for example, commit more crime than non-black people? Well, I want to challenge your premise. Sure. Because it's not at all clear that black people commit more crime. Okay, um, fair. The uh, uh, fact is that uh, black people, African Americans, are charged with homicide more often than whites in general. Um, and... Uh, that is certainly a very serious kind of crime, um, but it also reflects the distribution of uh, both guns and um, concentrated poverty areas that are highly segregated, uh, in, in which the, um, the long history is not known to most people, which is that uh, until after World War II, African Americans had lower rates of homicide than Irish immigrants, than others. Um, and it was actually the rise in the availability of guns that um, produced a major change after World War II, um, and which is, of course, confounded by the fact that with very small living space, uh, poor people in the United States living in cities spend more time on the streets than wealthier people who have lots of room indoors and things to, to do indoors. Parklands and stuff. So as um, Arthur Stinchcomb pointed out in the 1960s, uh, poor people are much more exposed to police observation, seeing them committing a, an offense of some sort, and arresting them. So if you just look at the prevalence of arrest, it's highly driven by... Um, the percentage of time that black people spend outdoors compared to white people yeah. and that police are encountering on the streets compared to white people. So we have to, to view the structure of everyday life as part of this question of committing more crime, especially when so much crime is a function of how police uh, are assigned to spend their time. If we wanted to talk about the harm from crime, and we think about the kind of massive frauds committed uh, not just by Wall Street bankers, but by all kinds of people, yeah. especially yeah, yeah. in the cyber world. Um, I, I think the amount of money stolen in the United States by white people vastly exceeds the yeah. amount of money <laughs> stolen by black people. Without a doubt. Right? And yeah. any other indicators of harm that Probably you might want to use. Probably from the president himself. <laughs> well, I, I think there's, um, th- there's a real uh, issue here in terms of whether the United States itself actually has more crime than Europe. And if you look at victimization of young men who are the most likely to be victimized by assault, the United States is a much safer place to be than Britain. The prevalence of being beaten up in Britain as a young man, white man, is much higher than it is in the United States. What the United States stands out for is getting shot to death. And the fact is we're armed... uh, Maybe because we're armed, people are less likely to get into fights. But whatever the explanation is, there's more assaults per capita in Britain, in Sweden, 
in Europe than there are in the United States, according to the International Crime Victimization Survey. There is far more homicide in the United States than mm-hmm. in any of these other places. We have to distinguish homicide versus non-lethal assaults. And they're just different problems with different causes. Yeah, interesting. So I was at a lecture at Cambridge recently by a professor of behavioral economics. His name is Sanjit Dharma. And he's written a textbook on behavioral economics, which is published by the Oxford University Press. And so I asked him this morning uh, if he had any questions for you. And the question he had, he had a bunch of questions, but I I picked this one out because I thought it was particularly interesting. He said, um, so how should we select police personnel? Like, how should we select our recruits? What do you think the processes should be? What, what should police look for in recruits? The behavioral characteristics of the kind of officers that we will need in the next 20 or 30 years are arguably uh, somewhat different from what we should have had in the past and didn't have often enough. Um, but some of them are still the same. And uh, there's a great book by William Kerr Muir Jr. that I know you read. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which Couple is, times. Is, is the first place I go to answer this question. Uh, is his University of California press book, Police Street Corner Politicians. The fundamental um, characteristic of the police role, as he points out, is that it, it's full of power and that power attracts attack. Power attracts criticism. Power has challenges to the legitimate use of authority that the law may give the police, but different personality types are able to use that power um, more effectively than others. Uh, Essentially, as he argues, it's people who have more um, comfort with a tragic view of life. That is, you can't maximize all values simultaneously, um, and more in sorrow than in anger, I'm going to have to put you in jail for what you just did. Um, as opposed to a cynical view of life, um, which may drive some police officers to do very little work and to stay away from engagement with tough situations. Um, with the individual personality differences actually being um, co-equal, in my view, to the culture of police organizations. So it's not unusual for behavioral scientists to focus on the individual decision-making process and to exclude the vast amount of evidence of sociological characteristics that shape behavior uh, because it just doesn't fit in with economic decision-making theory and so forth. There's not much role for uh, cultural determinants of utilities, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a real weakness, uh, which leads me to prefer a much more joined-up social science, which incidentally criminology is, yeah. in a way that economics isn't, and in a way that sociology is not, um, or psychology. Mm-hmm. So we take all disciplines, all levels of analysis, and we say, if you want a good police organization that does good things, you need more than just selecting the right people. And in fact, we have this experiment in Queensland that shows that um, with the same kinds of people, uh, both exposed to general police academy training and police academy training with a special course about the Holocaust and about how you need to help people who are being bullied by the government or more powerful people. What that experiment found was that the Holocaust course uh, produced no change in willingness to help people over the, uh, the length of the police academy, which was a bit of a disappointment until they looked at the control group, which was that in the course of normal police training, people who had been willing to help people by the end of the police academy were much less willing 
to help people because they had been socialized into a police culture yeah. that made them less inclined to make the kinds of decisions that we'd want them to make. So, I mean, that's my best answer to what kind of people do we want. We want the kind of people who will get the kind of training and the kind of organizational culture that will make them good police officers. But it's not just about the people. Yeah. It's about the organization and its culture. What do you think... What, what was the explanation for why police recruits become less willing to engage with the public through their training? Well, the short-time hypothesis was that too much of the training was being done by retired police officers who offered a fairly cynical, old-school yeah. view of police work, uh, which emphasized taking control of situations, not letting anybody uh, mess up with your authority, and, um, and not taking any risks. Mm. And that message from you know, an earlier day of policing... Um, was clearly at odds with the, the new message that the commissioner and the, the leadership of the Queensland Police was trying to, to give to the officers. But we always have to remember what the people at the top say is not nearly as important as what the face-to-face conversations are between officers and especially trainees and the people they're talking to. Mm. So you've had, you've had a long and uh, prosperous career so far. What is your biggest regret my biggest regret is not being able to get the number of police killings in the United States down um, more than they have gone down. We didn't even know until Ferguson and the Washington Post count and the Guardian count were launched um, how high the absolute numbers were. We do know that after the Supreme Court decision in 1985, Tennessee v. Garner, uh, which cited my research and the research of Jim Fife and some others, who showed that it was safer to have police not shoot fleeing felons and to, in effect, kill a lot fewer people. New York went from 90 to... 93 people the year I went to work for the New York City Police Department. 93 people were killed by New York City Police. And um, within 20 years, it was down to around 10 people a year. So it's huge drops yeah. in the number of people killed in the big cities in the earlier part of my career that a lot of people were working together to, to bring about. And I would say that for the most part, those changes in big cities have persisted. But in the United States, over half of all of the police killings of citizens occur in communities of less than 50,000 people. So I can argue there's good evidence it's a small-town problem, and it's a problem of small police departments. And that is as intractable as gun control. We can't amalgamate police departments in the United States. Uh, we have selected examples of it, but it's not a solution to a major structural problem. My, my regret is failure to amalgamate police departments and failure to achieve gun control by our nation, uh, the nation I was born in, uh, has left me with limited room to do anything about those problems. And uh, what I don't regret is coming here and trying to make the most of the appetite for mm. knowledge and learning and police reform that I found in, in the British world. So I regret that I had to leave the United States because those structural problems were uh, just insurmountable. Um, but I've, I consider myself very lucky that I was able to wind up here at Cambridge, which is the ideal platform for attracting global visibility to uh, a re-engineering, reinvention of police work as well as policing culture. Yeah, nice. So on the flip side, on the happier side, what are you most proud of? Hmm. I think I'm most proud of the uh, growing number 
of police professionals who understand, practice, and promote evidence-based policing. I, <laughs> I'm still surprised <laughs> that there are so many of them yeah. and that they are doing such good work. And they're so successful in putting a lot of these ideas into action. I, I, I can think of one day when in the first week of a course, we had two people from a particularly keen chief constable who, who were sitting in the room um, uh, while we were talking about something like the Crime Harm Index, and they're sitting there with their Blackberries sending messages back to their force, instructing people to uh, redo the analyses that they were in the progress of doing so that the next day the chief constable could have the Crime Harm Index information nice. that was coming through the PowerPoint slides in our classroom <laughs> through, through their iPhone right back up to the desk of a chief constable. Yeah. That, that's the kind of joined up role of higher education in relation to police practices mm. that uh, I started dreaming about when I first came to Cambridge in 1972, but I never thought it would, it would work quite that way. And um, I think the potential, now that we've rolled the snowball down the hill this far, the potential for that to pick up speed and get even bigger is, is very encouraging. So I'm just going to have to keep running four miles a day for the next 40 years and see how big it gets. Yeah. So now coming to your own personal beliefs, what kind of drives you? What informs your worldview? Why do you do what you do? Well, I'm strongly opposed to violence. I was a conscientious objector during World War World War Two. No, it was my father's war. The Vietnam <laughs> War. Thank you. The Vietnam War was... Did he serve? Um, your father? Sorry? Did your father serve? Yes, he was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that was a very different kind of war. But... By the time I was growing up with a very low draft number, I was going to have to uh, face uh, service in Vietnam for a very immoral war that I was opposed to. And um, when I found out how you could become a conscientious objector uh, under the law of the U.S. at that time and that I could work for the New York City Police Department as a conscientious objector, Mm, um, I applied to do that. And the day before I met with my draft board, to see whether they would approve the plan, uh, the uh, one of the student uh, terrorist groups blew up the New York City Police Headquarters entrance with a bomb. So I walk into my draft board the next day and say, I want to go work for the New York City Police. And they say, good, you might get killed. Approved. <laughs> it was a very short uh, discussion. And um, the, the upshot of that uh, has been that, well, in, in my first year, 10 police officers were assassinated. So that was the largest yeah. number of police killed in the history of the New York City Police in one year. Police killed 93 people. So I've been heavily focused on trying to save lives, but also to think about the extreme end of harm. And there's many people in police scholarship who are trying to push against that narrative, saying so much of police work is about the minor things in everyday life. We should recognize that. We should celebrate it. We should support it. And I agree with all that, but I also think that you have to set priorities in policing and that we spend far too little time trying to prevent murder, trying to predict, trying to uh, understand and test different ways to save life, to save people from suffering extreme harm. And I think with the the Cambridge Crime Harm Index, we've now found a tool that can be used widely in policing to help assess whether what we're doing right now is preventing as much harm as possible to people as opposed to just doing something because somebody asked us to do it 
which is where I'm afraid most of the resources get put in um, policing all over the world at the moment. So w with the, the question of uh, uh, what, um, uh, what drives me, what motivates me, uh, I'd have to say it's ultimately uh, at the same level of people like Bentham um, or Peel in whose traditions I'm very proud to work because I, I do believe in bounded utilitarianism and that we have finite resources that we need to be using for the greatest good, for the greatest number, in a very egalitarian way, mm. uh, which is hard to do in a very unequal society. Mm. But I'm not an economist, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to be able to do everything. But what I, what I can do, I think, is to focus on the prevention of violence. And that is my mission that will keep me focused on what's important and what I should be doing as opposed to other things. I guess just finally, um, where, where do you see your career going in the next few years or next 10, 20 years? Do you... More time uh, editing the journal, getting more uh, research by police officers uh, published and available to the police as well as to the public, mm -hmm. uh, trying to promote the idea that there's a huge body of knowledge in policing that most police officers have never even been told about, Yeah, uh, that most chief constables don't know about. And yeah, that's a lot of to get them to recognize not only that it exists, but also that it's very valuable. And the thing we were talking about this morning with uh, three former chief constables and uh, our 30 students from around the world is creating a whole new command center that is based mm -hmm. on um, algorithmic forecasting as well as uh, the experience of senior commanders in assessing how uh, quickly something bad is about to happen and uh, using the best statistical evidence and their best professional experience to uh, manage all of the resources of a police department 24-7 as opposed to the current situation in which police departments are basically run by uh, untrained call takers who answer the 999 calls and send police cars out. Sure. So yeah, it's, course, it's a yeah. very decentralized, unmanaged, unfocused way of running policing that technology now uh, will allow us to uh, improve. And one of the big ideas that we're trying to uh, get tested is rapid response by video. Rather than sending police cars, having people pick up their smartphone or their iPad uh, or their computer and use Skype, to have a face-to-face -face conversation with a police officer within a minute of calling rather, than, rather than waiting hours to sure, have a police car sure, show sure. And then I guess if it's important, obviously you send it someone out. Well, exactly. It yeah. gives you... Uh, Hampshire, for example, had 870,000 calls for service last year. They dispatched police wow. cars to 400,000. Um, <laughs> instead of 400,000 dispatches, they could have had 400,000 video contacts that would have led to maybe 250,000 dispatches yeah. with the other 150 ending with the video contact is sufficient. But with the person calling, seeing a real police officer, maybe from central casting, with uh, a uniform on, and yeah. being reassured that a real police officer understood the problem and was doing the best thing that could be done. Yeah. So we had Jeff Barnes uh, on the podcast before you, and he spoke about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Do you think that would be involved? Absolutely. In That's part of the plan for uh, a, an evidence-based police command center which would be informed by algorithmic predictions of uh, offender behavior, of harm against victims, and mm -hmm. of harm in places uh, and even areas, combined with an investigative tool that predicts 
whether further investigation of any crime is going to lead anywhere. And we, we just got yesterday uh, a compliment from Her Majesty's Inspector Constabulary for our work in Kent in developing a predictive tool for um, minor non-domestic violence situations uh, for deciding which cases not to investigate, mm-hmm. where we have actually a 2% error rate, 98% accuracy in predicting that this case is not going to go anywhere. So put the resources for it into not just other investigations, but into preventing more serious harm. Yeah, so, and just absolutely finally, um, some of the members of the public or possibly other police officers might have a concern about kind of, you know, this like minority report fear that you're kind of doing pre-crime um, and predicting things that might necessarily lead to crime and may lead to people being surveilled who shouldn't be, for example. Um, what would you have to say to that? Well, I think that the um, use of surveillance based on intuitive decision-making is the, the appropriate comparison. And um, the tools that they're talking about are already legal. They're already used. And the way in which those decisions are reached is not transparent because it's made based on intuition, uh, experience, potentially implicit bias, prejudice, and other things, um, at least with transparent agri- algorithms. And you know, not all algorithms are transparent. Yeah. The ones we install in police agencies are, and we have been quite... Uh, candid with the agreement of chief constables in explaining what the variables are, how they work. Um, And there's been some interesting discussions about them, but those discussions are only possible if you're transparent. If you have transparent algorithms, you get an improvement over the current state of the art because in the current state of the art, with intuition, nobody can explain how they made the decision. So which would you rather have? Would you rather have something that you know you can argue about than something you can't even begin to argue about because the guy doesn't know how he made the decision? Yeah. And incidentally, if you look at those decisions, a lot of them have very big racial disparities. Yeah, of course. So Which if, is a problem if in you, the if US. If you want to like, fix that, yeah. you can change the algorithm if you're algorithmic. If you're not algorithmic, you can't fix it. Mm. Do you have any final words you want to say to, say, police recruits or criminologists uh, starting uh, out in the field? There has never been uh, a more interesting time to go into policing than at this moment. Yeah. And the reason is that... In the past, it was seen as something to do if you were not very curious, but rather somebody who was willing to take orders, to do the right thing, to be calm, to be sober, uh, to, to be fair and follow the rule of law. Those are all wonderful requirements that we still want all police officers to have. But we also want to have as many curious, innovative, and... and um, inventive officers as we can get in a world in which digital technology is changing overnight. We can't even imagine what the technological environment is going to be like in 10 years. Yeah, But true. we do need officers who are curious to know about how the new technologies are working, how criminals can use them to harm people, and how we can prevent the criminals from doing it. Well, Larry, thank you so much for your time. Thank Appreciate you, Michael. Um, so yeah, peace out, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Bye now. Bye. I know you heard it from those other boys, but this time it's real. It's something that I feel it. I know you heard it from those other boys, but this time it's real. It's something that. I